Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This past weekend saw some of the greatest playoff pro football, perhaps the greatest weekend of playoff pro football ever, and perhaps the greatest playoff game with Kansas City and Buffalo. Sorry, Lisa Fine. I know you're still hurting for it. Jay and I are back to take a look at This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Trial of the Century, The Enron Trial, where with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the case, I take a look at the issues around the trial, the witnesses, and the outcome. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. The Voice of Compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 288 for the week ending, January 28, 2022, the 13th edition. Jay, how long does it take to win an NFL playoff game? 13 seconds. Amen. Not only Jay, but Patrick Mahomes says the same thing, and he did it last weekend in perhaps the most thrilling NFL playoff game ever. And Jay, if I could expand it to perhaps the most thrilling NFL playoff weekend ever. Fortunately for our hearts, uh, we did not have teams involved in the games, so we were able to enjoy them as fans. But we're going to put that aside for a moment to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So what say you, Jay? I say I want to know what's up with the TI-CPI press release. Well, the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index is out for 2022, ranking 180 countries and territories by how the public perceives the regional, the area's level of corruption uh, using a scale of up to 100. Uh, The TICPI is released annually. It's one of the uh, premier documents that many compliance professionals utilize to help set a level of due diligence. And uh, it takes a look back. So the 2022 report, of course, looks back to 2021. And um, I think many commentators were a little disheartened this year, Jay, because it uh, basically looks like there's no real progress on the perception of corruption. And we've cited to an article from Jacqueline Jager in Compliance Week uh, entitled TI Corruption Index Showed World Not Willing to Make Real Changes. I think other commentators have expressed the same uh, thought, and even the TI uh, press release really bore that out. Uh, Many disheartening results. Rick Messick over in uh, Global Anti-Corruption blog tells us that we need to utilize, uh, figure out how to make the report more useful but with this information, it, it certainly is disheartening. Uh, this is coupled with uh, the Biden administration's going the, the perhaps other direction, Jay, with their statement on uh, countering corruption and enhancements to white collar and FCPA prosecution announced by Lisa Monaco. So we may see more robust enforcement in the United States. The U.S. only uh, came in at 67, and that's, of course, because residual corruption from the Trump administration plus uh, the uh, the Trumps continuing to um, 
claim the 2020 election was uh, fraudulent and other election fraud initiatives uh, by Republicans across the country. So uh, TICPI report out for 2022, it certainly is disheartening, and uh, hopefully uh, we can uh, do better uh, next year or over the next series of year, Jay. Uh, Jay, uh, are you burned out? It's only January. There's no way anybody can be burned out. Ah, well, how about compliance officers? Well, that's a different story for compliance officers. Pay is up, but burnout is up as well. There was good news for compliance officers last week. They're in demand and their pay is rising. But there was bad news, too, as in the finance sector, compliance officers feel overworked and underpaid. Half want to change jobs and nearly three quarters say they're burned out. The good news came from an annual salary guide for compliance staff from Robert Half via the Wall Street Journal. Salaries for entry-level compliance officers have risen to about $66,000, and for chief compliance officers, it's $209,000. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate for compliance officers in the U.S. dropped from 3.5% to 2.4% in 2020. Unfortunately, there's a dark side. A survey of compliance professionals in the financial sector from the United States, UK, Canada, and Australia reported that 41% feel they aren't being compensated fairly, 53% want to change jobs, and 72% feel somewhat burned out. But what is burnout? It's a syndrome of exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficiency. The cause of all this burnout? Well, let's start with the obvious. More than two years later, the pandemic fatigue is real. Lockdown, travel restrictions, business and school closures, variants and breakout cases are pummeling everyone. Who doesn't feel somewhat displaced, hassled, and stressed out by what's going on? For most workers, being home all day was isolating. Last year, about 80% of the workers said they wanted to go hybrid. But by splitting work time between home and office, this became disruptive and disorienting. The BBC reported that a tiny pulse survey of 100 global workers found that 72% reported exhaustion from working hybrid. An ultra-tight labor market is also pushing up both pay and workloads for compliance officers everywhere. I haven't seen burnout statistics yet for all compliance officers, but I'll bet they're high, just, just those in finance sector. But I wonder, are compliance officers in the finance sector under unique pressure? The demand for know-your-client anti-money laundering functions is enormous, and FinCEN, the primary anti-money laundering agency in the U.S., says it now regulates more than 100,000 banks, credit unions, and money service businesses. Apart from banks, companies in other industries are reshaping themselves into financial services businesses. It's hard to think of a business now that doesn't offer purchase, financing, leasing, and subscriptions. Looking behind the finance sector, a lot of compliance officers and other workers must feel overworked and underappreciated. In most workplaces, under normal circumstances, employers and employees usually manage to find a balance. This past year, the pandemic has disrupted all of that. And uh, Richard says, welcome to the great burnout. Tom, uh, who's emphasizing the G in ESG? Uh, well, Jay, our, our good friend David Simon, who is going through a two-year uh, MBA program at Oxford, had a really interesting post this week on LinkedIn about the G in ESG. E, uh, ESG. And it's part philosophical, it's uh, part business, and it's part legal. 
he said one of the professors in, uh, in a class he'd just been taking said that a corporation develops what is called a corporate mind, and it's based on the meta-contract. And a met, the meta-contract is a corporation's publicly stated list of things uh, it is prepared to do and how it does business. In other words, the meta-contract is uh, an opinion of the corporate mind. And that when you have a regulatory failure, that is a failure of corporate governance because it's a failure of this corporate mind. And I thought that was a very interesting way to to take a look at the G in ESG. And Jay, for that really, uh, for me, that really drives home the message that compliance needs to to lead that ESG effort because if uh, a legal failure or compliance failure is going to be a governance failure, uh, there needs to be legal and compliance protections in place through uh, the, the things that you and I have advocated for years. Uh, tone at the top, uh, risk assessment, policies and procedures, uh, written code of conduct uh, based upon the risk assessment, and of course, training, incentives and disincentives, uh, continuous monitoring, and continuous uh, improvement of your compliance program. And so when you think of a compliance program along those lines, Jay, and the way that David wrote about it, it becomes a governance issue. And he ties uh, compliance to governance in a way that I thought was uh, very uh, powerful and a great way to think about it. It's something that compliance professionals need to think about. And, and frankly, I've already reached out to David. We're going to explore it uh, a little bit deeper uh, in a podcast as well. So uh, David Simon, writing in LinkedIn. Um, but you're going to talk about ESG perhaps a little bit different uh, direction, Jay. What do you see on investor demand driving ESG? Yeah, thanks. Uh, this comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insight. It's uh, from last month's featurey from the Compliance Life, Stone Turns Valerie Charles and her colleague, Tracy Groves. How does the rising tide of investor demand set the ESG risk and compliance agenda? Where dollars go, regulation, reporting, and risk follow, the demand and interest in ESG-aligned corporations show no sign of ebbing, and businesses will need to do what they can do to expand their ESG reporting and risk assessments. 2021 was a banner year for ESG, and if you don't know what that means, environmental, social, and governance investing, with nearly $650 billion invested into ESG-focused funds. No one considers ESG alignment or the socially responsible investing movement a fad or a passing moment, and the demand for sustainable investment opportunities has proven insatiable. First, we'll look at investing in the S. 2022 will lead to more investor focus on social issues. 2021 saw continuing public pressure and press on social justice issues, and the ongoing pandemic has redefined the workplace and corporate America at large as pivotal in addressing broader societal issues. In addition, the Great Resignation has created an urgent need for corporate focus on employee retention. Investors will closely be paying attention to successes and the failures in this regard. During 2021, companies face fresh pressure to replace rhetoric with action in boosting diversity and equality. Ready, set, disclose. The money will continue to flow into ESG in 2022, and when the money flows, the regulations follow. While the United States has been behind Europe and the United Kingdom in in requiring transparency, accuracy, and ESG data from public companies, 
2022 may well prove the year that the U.S. catches up. Importantly, in March of 2021, the SEC announced the creation of its Climate and ESG Task Force in the Division of Enforcement. <clears throat> the task force is made up of two dozen lawyers and accountants from across the SEC. In its press release, the SEC described the goals of this task force. Consistent with increasing investor focus and reliance on climate and ESG-related disclosure and investment, the Climate and ESG Task Force will develop initiatives to proactively identify ESG-related mis- misconduct. The task force will also coordinate the effective use of division resources, including through the use of sophisticated data analysis to mine and access information across registrants and to identify potential violations. In early 2021, and rather in early December of last year, Chairman of the SEC Gary Gensler publicly commented that the pending climate risk disclosure rules will require companies to provide greater detail and information about how climate-related metrics are used. Now we need to focus on ESG in your supply chain. The supply chain represents the largest potential ESG risk for most companies, yet it also holds the biggest promise to make a positive impact. And the ongoing pandemic has brought the concept excuse me, of supply chain into everyday discussion. Like third-party anti-corruption risk, it's impossible to eliminate ESG supply chain risk, but we can mitigate it with consistent assessment and monitoring. It won't be easy, but like third-party anti-corruption risk, it's impossible to eliminate ESG supply chain risk, but we can mitigate it. Increased ESG-related budget engagement data and metrics. Executive leaders have been waiting for waiting to foster ESG engagements and programming will need to step up their game in 2022. With increased scrutiny from the investment community, the regulators, and the public at large, corporations must determine how to take on ESG from determining whether the effort stands alone or is owned by an existing business unit. It's widely recognized that one of the biggest obstacles to implementing ESG is that the data used to measure and report on it is not standardized. Even where data is on hand, the metrics available vary across territories and regions. The critical need for reliable and consistent data will therefore become more and more urgent, driven by increasing pressure and expectations of companies to step up and report on their ESG commitments. While the ESG journey may be daunting, it also creates opportunity for businesses to demonstrate good corporate citizenry and to set its corporate identity apart. Ready or not, it's coming, so best be ready. Tom, what about human rights due diligence? So Jay, uh, coming to us from the FCPA blog, our second article today, James Ridden and Tomas Navarro write about how Switzerland has mandated human rights due diligence. So we now have a new Swiss law, a criminal uh, code law, that uh, companies have to do perform due diligence on certain uh, basically uh, human rights uh, issues. There must be transparency on non-financial matters. Uh, these tend to be a little more ESG type, uh, CO2 goals, social issues, employee-related issues, specifically including the respect for human rights and combating corruption. So there must be reports on these matters and certainly due diligence. And there has to be due diligence and transparency specifically related to minerals, metals from conflict zones, and child labor. Companies have set up a management system and supply chain policies on these issues to ensure traceability in their supply chain. 
Uh, companies have to implement a supply chain risk management problem to, or management plan rather, to identify and assess and minimize <coughs> the adverse effects of these matters in their supply chain. Uh, so, sort of independently from this, Jay, I got interested in uh, a human rights strategy for corporations and wrote about that this week. And obviously, this is a big part of an ESG effort. It's certainly something uh, compliance professionals know about and understand about because, once again, uh, that's what we do is set up policies and procedures for implementation of strategies based around a risk assessment. And the risk assessment now is that human rights have become much more important. They're certainly embedded within ESG and with uh, the uh, various legislation that's being passed literally across the globe to fight human trafficking and modern slavery. It's not too far a step to move it to a more encompassing and all-encompassing human rights component. So uh, Switzerland is just the latest country to pass such legislation. it's unknown whether such legislation would pass in the U.S., but it really doesn't matter, Jay, because every U.S. company is going to be subject, any, in anyone that does business internationally in Europe is now subject to a multitude of laws from Germany to Switzerland to England to France, uh, and I believe uh, in Belgium as well, around uh, human trafficking and now human rights. So another area for the compliance professional to, uh, to keep an eye on. Uh, Jay, we have had and are continuing to have commentary on the Lisa Monaco speech from 2021. Uh, uh, what did Stephanie Yonkura and Rupinder Garcha see around compliance issues in that speech? Thanks, Tom. This is the second of two from Corporate Compliance Insights and the two attorneys you just spoke of there at Hogan's Levels. Uh, DOJ enforcement in 2022, what the Monaco memo and U.S. anti-corruption strategy forecast for the year ahead. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco remarks on corporate criminal enforcement carry important implications for the compliance teams. Going forward, departments will need to take a wider view of a company's past wrongdoings, require more detailed information on individuals related to actions in question, and allow for the broader use of monitorships. Last fall, the DAG, Monaco, laid out three significant changes to corporate criminal enforcement policies. First, companies must now provide the DOJ with all non-privileged information about individuals involved in or responsible for misconduct at issue in order to be eligible to receive cooperation credit. Two, the DOJ will consider the full criminal, civil, and regulatory record of a company under investigation when looking at a company's potential recidivism to determine the appropriate resolution. And three, corporate monitorships we will, not, will not be disfavored. Prosecutors may require the imposition of an independent monitor whenever appropriate or necessary to satisfy the DOJ that a company will meet its compliance and disclosure obligations under deferred prosecutions agreements, DPAs, and non-prosecution agreements, NPAs. Decisions about monitors will be made based on the facts and the circumstances of each individual case. Dag Monaco stated, to the extent that prior Justice Department guidance suggested that monitorships are disfavored or are the exception, I am rescinding that guidance. Combating corruption with illicit financing. 
The Biden administration has made it clear that it plans to vigorously enforce the FCPA and a range of other statutory and regulatory regimes through criminal and civil enforcement actions. The administration's strategy called on DOJ to continue to vigorously pursue the enforcement of foreign bribery cases through the FCPA money laundering charges and forfeitures. Here are some recommended best practices. While it remains to be seen how many of the initiatives and announcements outlined will shape enforcement actions, one thing is certain. Companies operating at a global scale are subject to heightened scrutiny now more than ever. Companies must actively review and strength test their existing programs to ensure they're effective. Corporate compliance programs should be actively detecting, monitoring, and remediating misconduct in the first instance. Companies should be able to demonstrate to regulators the extent of internal efforts to prevent misconduct in the event such a compliance issue were to come to light. Dedicating resources to bolster compliance and training efforts will pay dividends down the road. The cost of a government investigation spanning years and a settlement can skyrocket quickly and have devastating effects for some companies. Companies admit settlement and negotiating resolutions with the government should keep in mind that prosecutors will review a company's complete criminal, civil, and regulatory record in determining appropriate resolution. This shift in policy has been driven by the view that a company's record of misconduct speaks directly to its overall commitment to compliance and fostering a culture that disincentivizes criminal activity. At the same time, recidivist companies may find that NPAs and DPAs may no longer be on the table. Furthermore, decisions about corporate monitors will be made on the facts of the case. Companies with a robust compliance program in place will be better positioned to assure prosecutors of its ability to meet compliance and disclosure obligations. As Dag Monaco noted, the policy changes DOJ has begun implementing are just the start of the administration's effort to tackle corporate crime. We should be accepting, expecting to see more policy changes this year. Tom, why don't you uh, further expound upon the DOJ's shift in antitrust policy? Sure, Jay. We had a major speech and announcement from Assistant Attorney General Jonathan uh, Kantner this week to uh, the New York City Bar around uh, changes in the, or rather New York State Bar Association, around changes this administration is going to put in place on antitrust enforcement. It really portends, Jay, a much more rigorous uh, antitrust enforcement He said that they would be looking at very closely Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which has not, frankly, been used in quite some time, almost 20 years uh, since the last filing of a major monopolization case. And this is just straight monopolization, taking over too much of the market. Um, They're going to take a very hard look at merger reviews uh, to track what they call market realities. And merger reviews always been an important part, but it's going to be even more significant now. Of course, with the FTC, these reviews not only will become more rigorous, but more time-consuming, and it may take longer to receive approval. He touched upon remedies, and this was, uh, I thought, a very interesting section, Jay. Um, Here, uh, Assistant Attorney General Kantner really talked about the types of remedies that you and I are familiar with, Jay, which is where uh, parts of a company might be sold off, spun off, or they would be looked at very closely to uh, make sure competition still existed. Uh, He can't nurse concern 
the sort of blocking entire transactions that misses the mark of antitrust enforcement, and that uh, rather than simply trying to shave off or sell off parts of a company uh, after uh, the acquisition will have gone through, companies, uh, that, or rather mergers, should just be stopped uh, full, full stop in their entirety. And he ended with um, what they call a whole-of-government approach. Obviously, the FTC with Lena Khan has become much more aggressive in its antitrust enforcement based upon some of the theories she's put forward, particularly around monopolization. And uh, we're going to have a much more aggressive U.S. government, not simply Department of Justice. Uh, and our, as you recall last week, Jay, this was a topic of conversation in our Everything Compliance podcast around Activision, Blizzard, and Microsoft. And so we could see several initiatives of the Biden administration come into play. Uh, Microsoft would not have monopolization power. They would be number three. But uh, the DOJ may say that's too, too much power, too high a concentration of power. You're not number one. It's hard to see that. But are there other factors in the play, Jay? And, and I'm sure you had a basic business law and antitrust course uh, at Wharton. And if you recall, the Sherman Antitrust Act has the rule of reason uh, and that every analysis uh, begins with a rule of reason. And what would that mean that if you're going to have a corrupt company such as Activision Blizzard, uh, which has had numerous sexual harassment issues around it, obviously corporate governance issues as well, um, if they're going to be taken over by uh, one of the shining stars in compliance at uh, Microsoft, not to say Microsoft does not have their own enforcement issues, but believed to be a, a pretty you know pretty good compliance compliant company and have uh, best of class compliance programs, is that something uh, that should be considered by the antitrust division? All open questions. We don't know. All I can say, Jay, is it's going to be a new day for uh, antitrust enforcement going forward. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. So uh, next up, we've got an article from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance from a couple attorneys at Wachtell Lipton. They are Andrew Brownstein and Carmen Liu. And guess what we're going to talk about? ESG and M&A in 2022, from risk mitigation to value creation. In the past 12 months, ESG investments have hit new records and attracted heightened regulatory focus on its disclosure and enforcement practices. Acquirers and targets alike will be increasingly expected to demonstrate their ESG credentials. The impact of ESG on mergers and acquisition could be further amplified by anticipated ESG disclosure rules coming from the SEC and if the Biden administration's Build Back Better Acts makes some headway. Many critical aspects of M&A will be affected by the integration of ESG into investor decision-making. Here's a few key trends. Expansion of ESG-oriented M&A. ESG considerations are shaping assessments of strategic fit, with both acquirers and targets looking to capitalize on synergies. Climate change and related transition risks have already prompted restructuring efforts in the energy sector. 
a trend that is likely to continue as investors and regulators step up pressures on companies to reduce their admissions. Last year, World Dutch Shell sold its Permian Basin assets to ConocoPhillips to reduce its global carbon emissions. Valuation, due diligence, and contractual innovations. The rise of an ESG premium will directly impact due diligence in addition to assessing ESG risk, such as corrupt business practices, labor laws, cybersecurity threats, and carbon emissions, acquirers will also need to examine related processes and procedures, including the degree of board oversight. In terms of financing, lenders have already seen this potential impact of significant ESG risks on the credit worthiness of businesses and industries. S&P and Moody's have integrated ESG considerations into their credit ratings, and meanwhile, the growth of sustainability-linked financing promises to lower the cost of capital for companies that commit to improving ESG performance. Investor and stakeholder engagements. Investors remain focused on ESG and performance, and companies will increasingly choose to address the ESG-related synergies and opportunities and transactions. Boards and management should be prepared to demonstrate how ESG considerations will impact long-term performance and growth prospects. In terms of regulatory risks with ESG, human capital, and cybersecurity disclosures still atop the SEC's rulemaking agenda, the shift in regulatory landscape may bring along new risks that could impact M&A. ESG Activision Driving M&A Engine number one successful proxy campaign against ExxonMobil last year underscored the growth of ESG activism. Activists will increasingly leverage ESG issues to rally the support of key institutional shareholders in favor of broader strategic changes. Post-merger governance and integration. We expect ESG considerations to further shape government structures post-acquisition particularly at senior levels where ESG oversight and monitoring responsibilities will need to be appropriately transferred and delegated. The full impact of ESG on M&A is still to be fully seen, particularly as companies, investors, and stakeholders, as well as regulators, continue to assess and revise their priorities. The regulatory landscape in the United States also remains in flux, and the quality of ESG disclosures and decision-making or decision-useful data while improving continues to leave much to be desired among investigators. Tom, tell us about FTC compliance risks on cyber and privacy. Sure, Jay. So this article comes to us from uh, several Devoboy lawyers writing in New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog, and they take a look at some of the trends under the uh, Biden administration's Federal Trade Commission chaired by Lena Khan, who I talked about a little bit in my last uh, section. Uh, she says that companies need to, or the article says rather, the companies need to engage in a wide variety of strategies uh, around this new aggressive F- FTC. One is to monitor aggressive policy developments, and certainly we've seen those from Chairman Khan. There's currently four um, commissioners, and that means that there potentially is a two times two split between Republicans and Democrats. So uh, monitor the FTC commissioner roster. Understand FTC civil investigation demands process and timelines, and understand the FTC's legal standards for establishing deceptive or unfair practices. There are several sections around um, 
the FTC's ability to get uh, financial penalties. Uh, this was severely cut back by the U.S. Supreme Court, but there may be ways they, uh, the FTC can uh, criminally, or rather, civilly go after individuals and assess criminal penalties. Uh, determine whether you have any uh, alleged deceptive or unfair practices ongoing. That sounds like a risk assessment to me, Jay. The uh, aforementioned Supreme Court decision is called AMG Capital, and it's something that uh, you need to understand uh, both uh, the enforcement options uh, before and after uh, AMG Capital. Uh, there's a wide variety of uh, factors you need to consider when settling or litigating an FTC case. And then lastly is to monitor congressional developments uh, to the extent we have uh, Congress actually do anything, which maybe we don't have to worry about that. But it's really a new day for the FTC, and uh, you, if your company is subject to FTC oversight or, or requirements, you need to be actively involved rather than passively in this case. And Jay, uh, from our last, um, for our last story, rather, uh, Mike Volkoff has a to-do list. Could you tell us about his to-do list? Sure, Tom. This comes to us from Mike's Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. And uh, this is things that, for 2022, uh, considerations that a CCO should make in terms about their uh, contribution to ESG, but also where ethical culture stands. Over the last year, CCOs were swept up in the ESG movement. Some companies asked their CCOs to take on this new responsibility, while others were asked to play a key role in the effort. Mike's view has been consistent on this important trend. The CCO needs to participate as a robust partner, particularly with respect to governance issues, call it the big G, but it has to avoid overall responsibility for the ESG program. It's too easy for CCOs and their supporters to take on responsibility without thinking about the consequences. Sounds a little bit Spider-Man to me. CCOs have to take a deep breath and think about carefully before they leap. CCOs have a high-priority project that needs attention, and that's the company's ethical culture. Luckily, this task dovetails neatly into the ESG Big G framework. Corporate culture is an issue that too few CCOs take on because it requires a little effort, some creativity, and education within the company. Yet, of course, everyone's mouths, everyone mouths their support of corporate culture. Deep down, however, CCOs know that they should be pushing the culture initiative into a new and critical area. Defining a culture, measuring culture, monitoring culture, and remediating culture. It's time for CCOs to step up and make a clean statement of commitment and begin the work that's needed. Mike is not suggesting that this will be easy by any means, but before taking on the newest hot corporate initiative, ESG, chief compliance officers need to get their own houses in order and direct their efforts to support the governance Big G issues. Instead of jumping in onto the ESG bandwagon, CCOs have to turn inward and stand up as true for a true and ethical culture. As part of this effort, CCOs have to craft a program to generate culture data. Reports on the report on that data to senior management and the board at least quarterly, and then manage its culture-based performance. Mike's view may not be the most popular among compliance professionals and commentators, but he has consistently argued that the CCOs are the natural protectors of a company's culture. 
CCOs have to lead on implementing culture, including targeted value statements, senior management commitments to culture tasks and actions, culture surveys, and focus groups. In the end, CCOs play a critical role in protecting and advancing a company's reputation. If asked, CCOs will candidly acknowledge that they have more to do in this area, and CCOs know that it's a high priority and a difficult initiative to organize and implement. But in the end, it's critical to every ethics and compliance program. ESG advocates need to understand the importance of a company's ethical culture. An ethical company will experience significantly lower rates of misconduct, increases in productivity, and ultimately improved and sustainable financial performance. In this situation, ESG advocates should understand the importance to establishing and maintaining an ethical culture is essential to the success of any corporate initiative, such as ESG, business growth or expansion, or any other strategies. Tom, that's the last of our stories for this week. Why don't you give us an introduction into the potpourri of podcasts we have for our listeners? So, sure, Jay. Uh, First up, we had our final episode of The Compliance Life in January with Valerie Charles. Val has one of the great stories of a CCO, Jay, having left literally the CCO chair to move to a tech company and then bout to the consulting world. And part four, she takes a look at compliance down the road based upon uh, her experiences, both the CEO, CCO rather, at a tech company and now uh, at consultant, a partner at Stone Turn in consulting. And uh, the um, Everything Compliance Gang Rather, uh, actually, I'm going to skip that one, leave that one to you. Uh, I'm going to talk about the trial of the century, Jay. Uh, This is a passion project of mine, uh, something that I've studied for years. And I was lucky enough to reconnect with Lauren Steffi. Lauren was the business columnist for the Houston Chronicle during the trial, and he um, covered the trial every day. And so I asked Lauren if he would uh, sit down with me and do a podcast on his reflections of the trial. So he went back and reviewed his notes, reviewed his columns, and we had a great time talking about the trial. Last year, as you know, Jay, was the 20th anniversary of the uh, Enron bankruptcy, and there was lots around that. The Wall Street Journal had a great podcast about the collapse of Enron, but no one's really focused on the trial. The trial was 15 years ago, so uh, Lauren and I took the opportunity to do a podcast series on it, and it literally was the first trial of the century. There may be others that were uh, equally big, but uh, you've never had a a case in the United States where the alleged seventh largest corporation in America had its last two CEOs put on trial for uh, fraud and corruption. Uh, so lots uh, to talk about. It was a great series. We did uh, dropped all five episodes this week. We looked at the prelude to the trial in part one, and part two, the trial begins. Part three was star witnesses and key testimony. Part four was the verdict comes in. What was that like? And then we wrap it up with what does it all mean in, in part five. So it was a great uh, a great series. I hope uh, if you haven't checked it out, you will. And this concludes the final week, not the final episode, but the final week of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. It does run 31 days, so it'll run the 29th, 30th, and 31st. Uh, you still got a chance to check it out. So if you're interested in upgrading or enhancing your compliance program, uh, this is the podcast series for you. So I hope you'll check that out. What do you have for us, Jay? Uh, so circling back to what you previewed, Tom, uh, we got the Everything Compliance Gang together for our second podcast in January. The Everything Compliance Gang includes Jonathan Armstrong, 
Karen Woody, Matt Kelly, myself, Jonathan Marks, and the uh, straw that stirs the drink is Mr. Tom Fox. And we just had a great show. We took a look at the Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, and we did like a 360-degree review on it from regulatory concerns, from where monitors might have to might be able to help, and from how the company's pricing was distressed and it allowed Microsoft to swoop in. We did two, uh, two versions of shout-outs and rants. One of them was uh, comparing BG songs to the Microsoft acquisition of Activision Blizzard. And then we also tipped our cap to, I guess we're saying Mr. Loaf, Meatloaf, and his untimely passing, but we had some great memories. And uh, there are two ways you can consume this, the full episode, or you can just check out fan favorites, shoutouts, and rants. So that's about it. Should I take us home, Tom? You should. So Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can always be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and you can reach me at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 288. 88, that's a good number for a tight end. Uh, for the week ending January 28th, 2022, the 13th edition, we'd like to thank you for joining us and hope you can spend some time with us either this week or this weekend. And we'll be in touch with you next week when we take a look at this week and FCPA. Take care. This is Tom Box again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions or feedback for Jay and I, we have our email addresses listed in the show notes, and we'd love to hear from you. I also hope that you will check out the Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial. It really was the first trial of the century in the 21st century, and in many ways it led to not only Sarbanes-Oxley, but also many of the corporate governance initiatives we've seen over the past few years, and even ESG. Lauren makes that direct connection, so I know you'll enjoy Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial. We also have a couple of other new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. Gwen Hassan with Hidden Traffic on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking. Karen Woody on Classroom Insiders on the History of Insider Trading. Both new shows on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at compliance and ethics stories on This Week in FCPA, which is, of course, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.